Welcome to Global IQ with The Economist. I'm Jim Falk, President of the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth. In today's conversation, Riding the Economic Wave, is with Leo Abruzzese, Director of Global Forecasting for The Economist Intelligence Unit. As you submit questions for Leo throughout the broadcast via the chat feature of the online forum, we ask that you please include your name and location so we know from where you're listening. A special greeting to World Affairs Council members, subscribers to The Economist, and clients of our sponsors, Texas Capital Bank, a Texas-based bank for businesses that think and act globally, and Jones Day, one firm worldwide. If this is your first time tuning in, we encourage you to listen to Global IQ AudioCast archives, available on both iTunes and the Council's website, dfwworld.org forward slash global IQ. During the program, you have the chance to win prizes courtesy of The Economist and the EIU by being the first to correctly answer one of our IQ challenge questions via the online chat. So be sure to stay tuned for your opportunity to win. Leo Abruzzese joined The Economist Intelligence Unit in 1998 as editor of Viewswire, the EIU's daily political and economic commentary unit. Before assuming his current position as director of global forecasting, he served as director of wire services and headed up editorial operations in the Americas. Thank you so much for being with us, Leo. Jim, thank you very much for inviting me. It's a pleasure to be here today. You know, one of the things that has to be on everybody's mind, especially as they fill up their tank for the weekend, is the price of gasoline. And there certainly has been a lot of volatility in the last few days, if not the last several weeks. Could you share with us some of your thoughts on on this? Sure, Jim. Clearly, the price of oil has just been astronomically high, really, since the beginning of the year. The price began to rise sharply at the end of uh, 2010 and has really just moved steadily up. Now, what's interesting is towards the middle end of last week, the price of oil, the global price, that is the price of international markets, fell quite sharply. You probably noticed that it fell by about $12 a barrel in a short period of time. Uh, that will be good news because the price that people pay at the gas pump ultimately is linked to global prices. So although I'm not quite confident enough to say that we have seen the peak in the price of a gallon of gasoline, uh, certainly when you consider how high it has been and the fact that it has dro- dropped quite sharply, I would say that, fingers crossed, uh, the price now, which is up around $4 a gallon, should come down a bit. Not not hugely, but it should come down a bit because the, the oil markets now are off their top. And, and I would say certainly about time, considering that they had risen so rapidly and at such a level that it was really above any fundamentals. A lot of speculation there, and uh, good to see that at least some of that speculation has come off the bubble in the last few days. You know, when you talk about speculation, I and mean, let's let's say a price right now is at $100. How much of that price is speculation? And and also, can you give us a sense? I've, I've heard people you know, speculate it could be anywhere from 10 to $15. Of how much of it is is risk factor that's built in, say, from the Middle East? Yeah, Jim, there's there's, there's absolutely no way to say for certain how much of that is, is a risk premium or speculation. There's just no simple formula for that. But, but generally speaking, if you, if you start out by looking at supply and demand, uh, which ultimately is what should control the price of anything but often doesn't, I would say that, that on a $100, uh, $100 barrel of gasoline or a barrel of oil, you're probably looking at, at somewhere in the vicinity of, of $15 to $20 
that is, is a risk premium or, or some kind of speculation. So if you, if you consider the fact that the price has come off by about $12 a barrel, it suggests that there's still a risk premium in the market, but at least some of it has come off. And it's important to remember that the price of oil, although ultimately it revolves around supply and demand, a lot of it revolves around investors who are, are making decisions on whether they want to hold assets in dollars or assets in other currencies. That's where the speculation or the investment comes into it. But I would say generally, uh, my view, somewhere between 15 and $20 probably represents some kind of, of risk premium and or speculation. You, know, you touched on a point that uh, is something that non-economists may not have a good, good grasp on, and, and that is the relationship between the price of oil and, uh, and, and other commodities and, uh, on, on the U.S. dollar and other currencies. Yeah, this is an important issue. One would think, and one would be wrong, to think that the price of oil goes up or down based on how much oil countries are using. And to a certain extent, that's true. The reason that oil is, is over $100 a barrel, in part, is because there is a lot of demand. The U.S. uses a lot of oil, so do the Europeans, and, of course, increasingly in the last 10, 15 years, so does China and India. So don't get me wrong. Certainly, demand for oil is much, much higher than it was uh, 10, 15 years ago, and that's the underlying reason why the price is high. But investors are always looking to get returns, and investors have a lot of places they can put their money. And they are, they are, when you talk about speculation, speculation sounds negative, but really all it is is people just looking for a return on their money. And what tends to happen is when investors are fairly confident, when they're fairly happy, when they think the global economy is going pretty well, they're willing to take risks. Most people are. If things are going well, you're willing to take a little bit of a punt and, and try something a bit riskier. And over the last couple of months, when generally speaking the view was the global economy was doing pretty well, investors will go into riskier assets. And commodities are risky. You know commodities are risky because the prices go up or down quite a bit. Commodities are always a risky play. So when people were quite optimistic about the global economy, January, February, March, early April, they decided why hold dollars. Uh, you don't make very much on the dollar. You know how low interest rates are in the U.S. So you, you drop your dollar investments and you go into something that will give you a better return. And commodities have the potential to do that. That's one of the reasons prices were going up. People were piling in to an asset that looked like it had a lot of upward potential, just the way people would do that with a hot stock. What's happened in the last two or three weeks is suddenly investors have looked around. They've seen some slightly weaker economic growth numbers in some countries. They've gotten a bit nervous. They've decided, I don't want to be quite as risky as I have been before. So they've decided to go back to the good old U.S. dollar, which, which is always a safe haven when things begin to get a little bit dicey. And so people have, have dropped some of their commodities and gone back into the dollar. And when you drop commodities, the price goes down. And interestingly and happily for us economists, the dollar has risen in value, which is exactly what you would expect to happen. So that's kind of the relationship. It's really a, a bet on how risky you see the environment being. And if you're willing to take a risk, you go into commodities and oil, and the price goes up. And when you get a bit nervous, you go back into dollars, and the price of commodities comes down a bit. That's, that's, that's very helpful. Thank you. Thank you on that. Now, one of the things that I read in your forecast is that you're looking at increased production from countries such as Kazakhstan and Brazil, which you believe will be a moderating influence 
on, on prices through, I, I think you wrote, uh, up to uh, 2015. And, and this strikes me as, as somewhat contrarian from what I've seen in some other areas, uh, especially given the uh, anticipated increased demand from uh, India and, and, and China. Well, a couple, a couple of issues there. there. There's no question that, generally speaking, for the next several years, uh, demand for oil is going to stay fairly high. Uh, China is still growing rapidly. You know that China, China generally grows in the range of 9%, 9.5%, sometimes 10% a year. India is not growing at a much slower rate than that now. India is up also in the high 8s and the 9s as well. So that's going to keep demand up. And hopefully the U.S. economy will continue to recover. Uh, the European economy is recovering as well. So in, in a sense, you might have most of the, of the major pillars of the global economy, if not hitting on all cylinders, at least hitting on quite a number of them. And at one level, yes, absolutely, if the economies are going well, they'll need oil to operate. Uh, we do think, though, that there will be – there's no question, for example, Brazil – has large quantities of oil, as I'm sure you know, and it's been a big story the last few years. Brazil has had major discoveries offshore. Right now, Brazil produces about 2 million barrels a day, and some of that oil, some of that oil they've discovered slowly in a trickle is beginning to feed through into production right now. So we're predicting that by 2015, Brazil will go from 2 million barrels a day to 3 million barrels a day. So uh, I think we're right, and I'm, I'm happy to, to say that I'm, I'm confident in what we wrote, saying that there will be some additional production from places like Brazil. Kazakhstan's another oil producer. They're having a little bit more of a difficult time bringing it on stream, so it may not help out quite as much. But there is some additional supply there. Remember the Saudis. The Saudis function as, as kind of the central bank of the oil world. They always have extra capacity and they can put it online when they need to when prices get high. So we do, we, do think, oh, we do think there's some additional uh, additional reserves and capacity out there that can come online. Indeed, um, Saudi Arabia, I guess, has helped quite a bit with the uh, drop in production from Libya. They, they did initially. It's an interesting story there. Uh, Libya used to produce about 1.6 million bar barrels a day, 1.6 million a day. As a result of the Civil War, about a million barrels a day was, was cut out of the market because of all the disruptions. So the question is, what about that one million barrels that we lost? Well, initially, the Saudis jumped in pretty eagerly. So did the Kuwaitis, so did the Nigerians. And they pretty much made up most of that million barrels a day. Interestingly, though, the Saudis have pulled back a little bit because the kind of oil they were producing was not quite easily replaceable for Libyan oil. As you know, there are different grades of oil and refineries need different kinds. So although the Saudis have been helpful, they've actually discovered that some of the oil they were producing wasn't quite uh, what the European buyers were looking for. However, that said, some of the other players that I've mentioned have produced more and um, for the most part, we're not really any worse off in terms of production than we really were before the Libyan crisis began. Now, yesterday, several of the leaders of the major oil companies were before Congress, and one of the points that they made was they needed to be unshackled. And I'm wondering what you think would be the impact on global energy prices now as well as in a few years if the United States uh, opened up more offshore fields as well as the Arctic National Wildlife Ref Refuge in, in Alaska. Well, Jim, these are obviously politically sensitive issues and have been going on for a long time. At a basic level, leaving aside the, the, the politics or 
the environmental considerations, which of course uh, can be considerable and are an important issue to at least uh, review, anytime you can put additional production onto the market, that's going to help to bring prices down. If you leave aside some of the sensitive issues like, like ANWR and offshore oil drilling in the U.S., I can tell you that when we look at other countries, if we see new fields coming online in Saudi Arabia or in Nigeria, uh, we certainly put that into our equations and say this is additional production coming online. And, and there's no question that along with, of course, the demand for oil, which is the other side of that equation, uh, additional production means that uh, it will have a, a beneficial or a moderating effect on prices. So certainly if there was increased domestic production in the U.S., uh, just as, as a very simple situation, leaving aside the speculation, yes, that should help to bring down prices. Increased production almost always will. Now, it's going to be up to really the American public and the politicians as their representatives to decide what kind of trade-offs they have to undergo for doing that. But uh, as a basic equation, sure, uh, more offshore drilling and drilling in other areas brings more production online, and that's going to help uh, at least to keep prices from going up as much as they have been. Before we move into whether or not the U.S. Congress is going to increase the debt ceiling, we have a, a question from Fred in Dallas. There's been a, a, a good deal of discussion around toxic assets and real estate uh, instruments still being held by remaining banks after the 2008 financial downturn. Can you please provide some additional insight on this subject? Have the majority of these assets been written off or disposed? And what additional impact will this have on the U.S. financial and real estate market in the next few years? Well, a lot of the assets have been written off. Uh, you, you, can, you can look at what banks have been reporting, and quite a bit of what they had on their books uh, really has now been gotten rid of. I mean, part of it was through the government's program. In other cases, banks simply wrote off the assets, and they've raised capital. You have to raise capital when you do that. So there has been a lot of capital raising. Certainly the banks are in much better position than they're in now. They have not gotten rid of all of their assets. And that's one of the reasons why I'm talking about the toxic assets now. They have not gotten rid of all of them. And that's why banks are still fairly conservative now. Uh, the Federal Reserve, the central bank, does surveys periodically. And one bit of good news in their latest survey is that bankers are now indicating for the first time in a number of years that they're actually taking a, a more favorable view towards lending, especially towards lending to small businesses. And that tells us that they feel in their own minds that they've gotten rid of, of a good portion of their toxic assets and they're beginning to feel a little bit more confident. Now, we're by no means saying the banks are back to normal. They are not. Uh, if you look at our outlook for the U.S. economy, we don't have the economy performing in the next few years at the level that it did perform, say, in 2004, 5, and 6. And one of the reasons for that is we think the banks are still going to be somewhat weighed down by the assets, the toxic assets on their books. But they have gotten rid of a lot of them, and I was quite happy to see these latest surveys from the government showing that bankers are feeling a bit more optimistic and a bit more likely to open the purse strings and uh, let, let some of that capital go out, especially this to small and medium businesses. I want to thank you, Fred, for that question, and let me remind our other listeners, just send in your questions through the online forum, and we'll be sure to ask as, as many as we have time for this morning. Uh, the headline this morning in the Wall Street Journal was Stakes Rise on Debt Vote. Uh, is there, what, what's, what's your view about whether or not the Congress is going to raise the debt ceiling, and, and how certain is that date of August 2nd? This is um, 
this is a political issue and an economic issue. Let, let me say right at the start, before we go into the politics, in my view, there is, there is absolutely no chance, zero chance, that the U.S. government will default on its debt. In other words, that it will not pay its obligations to bondholders. I can't emphasize enough the, the catastrophic consequences if that did happen. It's important to understand, as much as people talk about the rise of China and the influence of Europe through the common currency, the United States still has the reserve currency. Everyone in the world needs to and wants to hold dollars to some extent. And even though the U.S. has some problems with high debt, there's no question we have too much debt in this country, at the end of the day, there is nothing safer or more secure than U.S. government debt. Everyone buys it. It is the biggest, largest, deepest, most reliable market in the world. Other countries have defaulted. Argentina has defaulted on its debt. So have plenty of other countries. If the United States defaulted on its debt, there would be very, very quickly and very rapidly an extraordinarily deep recession in this country and globally because that would undermine not just in the United States, it would undermine for investors, for every bank around the world, it would undermine the, the most stable underlying principle we have, which is the U.S. government pays its debts. It won't happen. Interest rates in this country would double or triple overnight if we defaulted on our debt. And as much as, as people may not be fond of politicians, and there's good reason not to be fond of them, and as much as they tend to snipe at each other for partisan reasons, None of them, not in the administration, not in the Congress, not the Republicans or Democrats, will let the government default on its debt. There's a game of chicken going on right now, and this is all about getting cuts in the budget deficit, which is important. We are huge supporters of reducing the budget deficit, but the government will not default on its debt. How would you suggest that the budget and the deficit be reduced? Well, there, there's, there's short-term and there's long-term. What's going to happen right now is, first of all, that debt ceiling, you asked about the particular date. You'll notice that the, the administration keeps moving out the date, the sort of Armageddon date, where the, the debt limit needs to be raised. First it was early July, now it's early August. I have no doubt that it can be moved out to early September. And the reason is the government has a lot of ways that it can, in effect, access money that it needs to pay the interest on these loans. There are, the government is, of course, a, a very, very large entity. There is money in many different places, and the government can redirect that money from certain places where it is now to pay off debt. So they've already pushed out that, that uh, sort of dramatic date from early July to early August, and they'll push it out again. I'm not suggesting they can push it out indefinitely. At some point, they are going to have to raise the debt limit so they can borrow again. But there is the capacity to do that. And I would suggest that in an absolute worst case, and it won't come to this, the government would simply uh, stop paying some obligations to citizens. I think they would actually potentially cut back on, on pension payments and others before they would default on the debt because that would be, as bad as that would be for people who are counting on checks, it would still be less of a problem than actually defaulting on debt. So how's this going to resolve? I mean, short term. Go ahead. Short term, I'm just going to say there's going to have to be an agreement over the next few weeks to do some substantial budget reduction short term. The Republicans will insist on that, and ultimately Mr. Obama is going to have to go along with it. It certainly changes the negotiating strategy, though, when you don't have a certain date. 
Yes, it, 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 it does, and, and certainly from the administration standpoint, they want to emphasize that date. I'm not suggesting that, that they are, are being untruthful. I'm sure there are good reasons for having that date out there. But again, as I've noted, they've already moved it once. They can move it again because there are places you can get money. I mean, think of it in simple terms as taking money out of your left pocket and putting it into your right pocket. The government can do that. The government has any number of funds and resources where they can move several billion dollars relatively easily in order to pay those obligations. You can't do that forever. Obviously, you, you can run these tricks uh, for a certain period of time, and then eventually you will have a serious date. But, of course, there's no way the government's going to reveal that date right now. There are better poker players than that. What number do you think the debt limit will be raised to? Well, they'll, they'll probably raise the debt limit enough to at least get them through the election in November of, of next year. They certainly don't want to go through this again uh, before the election, considering how uh, really disruptive this is for everybody, including the markets. So they'll, they'll raise the debt limit enough to cover their borrowing for at least a year and a half. M my real concern here is not so much about default. As I said, I don't think that's going to happen. But we were talking earlier, you were asking about the dollar and oil prices. And what concerns me is that I'm not sure the financial markets, which, which tend to be nervous under the best of circumstances, are going to be quite as confident as I am that this won't happen. And so there's a distinct possibility that as this game of chicken uh, proceeds over the next few weeks and months, that investors might start to get nervous. And in the same way that, as I described earlier, they've been moving into dollars right now because they've been getting a little bit nervous about some of the oil markets, there's a possibility that people may start to worry, really worry, about whether this debt limit will be raised. And if that happens and they start pulling out of dollars again, then we could start seeing interest rates going up. What that would mean is people uh, taking out loans, especially mortgage loans, could start to see interest rates moving up a little bit, which, of course, is the last thing the housing market needs in the U.S. right now. Let's go to our first global IQ uh, challenge question, and it is, according to The Economist, which country spent more than 10% of its total budget on defense in 2010? Did the United States, China, Saudi Arabia, or North Korea be the first to answer this question correctly, and you'll receive a one-year subscription to The Economist? We have a question from Ed in Dallas, and he says, at what price would the Saudis like to see the price of oil settle? Well, um, I, I would say that the Saudis uh, would begin to get nervous if the price of oil went below, say, 80 or $85 a barrel. It's interesting, Jim, not that many years ago, as recently as maybe 2005, the Saudis and OPEC used to have a range within which they'd like to see oil settle. It seems like the old days. You know what that range was? 22 to $28 a barrel, and that, and that was five or six years ago. Um, since then, the Saudis have become quite used to higher oil prices, and they're spending quite a lot domestically. Most, most governments are, are piling up a fair amount of debt or at least trying to find some way to keep their citizens happy, and the Saudis are doing a lot of that. Remember, too, with all of these disruptions that we've seen in Egypt and Tunisia and elsewhere, the Saudis don't want that happening to them, so they are more than happy right now to take some of that largesse they have from the high oil prices and pump it back into their economy to keep their citizens happy. So they have bigger domestic uh, fiscal needs, budgetary needs, than they've had before. And I would say that they're not going to let the price of oil, even if it does begin to fall, as we've seen, 
it won't go below 80 or 85 dollars a barrel unless the global economy really collapsed. If somehow the U.S. really fell back and Europe did and China, for example, encountered serious problems, I could construct a scenario where it could go back to 50 or 60 dollars a barrel. But the Saudi, I would say the Saudi floor is probably uh, in the low 80s. We have a question from David. Could you comment on how the ending of the Fed's QE2 program will affect the U.S. dollar as well as the price of oil? That's a great question. The, the Fed, as you know, has been trying to provide some additional cash for the economy, printing money in effect. Uh, a, a, a difficult and sometimes risky thing to do, but considering how weak the U.S. economy has been, uh, it qualifies, in my view, as, as a necessary stimulus. question now, though, is, this so-called QE2, or quantitative easing plan, runs out in June, which basically means that this extra cash that's been washing through the economy, some of that starts to come out again. And what a lot of people have worried about is, if you assume this extra cash is, is like some adrenaline, extra adrenaline in the market, what happens when the adrenaline comes out? Now, if the Fed is right, the economy has begun to pick up enough steam that it will continue moving on its own. In effect, it doesn't need the adrenaline or the steroids anymore because the jobs market is getting a little bit better. Consumers are spending a little bit more. That's the hope. I think that that is probably a good bet. From what I've seen, as you probably noticed, a lot of your listeners saw some reasonably good um, jobs numbers last week, about 270,000 private sector jobs created in one month. My view is, although the economy is far, far away from booming, that I, I am seeing some stronger evidence that this self-sustaining recovery, that is, that things are beginning to turn over on their own in a positive way, that this is happening. And if so, what that would mean is when the Fed does uh, end its QE2 program in June, the economy should continue moving at that stage. And for the dollar, I would say that's positive for the dollar because people uh, who hold dollars are always nervous when the government's printing a lot of money. The government prints less money. That should probably help to strengthen the dollar a little bit. James Surowiecki wrote last week in The New Yorker that the U.S. doesn't have a spending problem. What it has is a health care problem. Uh, would you agree with that? And you know, do you think health care costs will be controlled there's no question. Uh, well, the U.S., I think, has both a spending and a health care problem. But from a governmental standpoint, from the budgetary perspective, no doubt at all. He's absolutely right. It is, is the health care programs. It is, it is Medicare, Medicaid, and then to a lesser extent when you move out into Social Security. It's those so-called entitlement programs. But as you said, Jim, mainly health care that is really creating those budgetary problems going out 5 or 10 or 15 years. Uh, there are a lot of ways that different political groups are trying to deal with this. As you know, Congressman Ryan from the Republican side is trying to put in a voucher program for Medicare. I mean, economically, that's an interesting idea, and I think not something to be dismissed. Uh, politically, I think that's a very, very tough play. I, I think even uh, Congressman Ryan's fellow Republicans are having a little bit of difficulty swallowing that politically. As we know, senior citizens are influential part of the economy, influ influential on voting days, and Medicare is a very popular program. So I'm not quite sure Congressman Ryan's going to get his way, but his instincts are right, 
And likewise, uh, President Obama, through his health care plan, whatever you think of that plan, his goal was to try to restrain health care costs. And again, his instincts are right. If you look at the numbers, health care spending is the problem. And talking about sacred cows, uh, defense is another one. And I uh, want to ask you about that as soon as we uh, congratulate Dagmar, who is the winner of the first challenge question. The answer was Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia spends more than 10% of its total budget on defense in 2010. And Dagmar told us that she already is a subscriber to The Economist, so she would like to receive uh, the very nice gift that was provided by the EIU, and that is the most recent five-year forecast report on oil, which analyzes current developments and future trends for energy sector. And Dagmar, that has a value of over uh, $500, so, so congratulations. Indeed, Leo, you did call, or the economist did, did call the fence budget uh, the sacred cow. Um, and, and now that Secretary Gates is stepping down, uh, how do you see uh, that uh, happening? And do you think that there really is a, a, a potential to greatly decrease the defense budget? Because now we spend uh, close to 60% of the uh, total world spending on defenses by the United States. Yes, it's, I don't think you use the word uh, greatly uh, reduce the defense budget, and I, I don't think that you're going to see reductions um, at that level uh, for, for a number of reasons. One, of course, to the extent that we have uh, the Republicans and conservatives running the House of Representatives right now, uh, they will be very supportive of defense spending. So I think at a, very, at a minimum that provides a floor under any reductions that we'll see. However, there are going to be some reductions. We are in the process, of course, of, uh, of winding down two wars now. Iraq, uh, for, the, for the most part, has, has, has ended, at least in terms of the very, very high levels of defense commitments that we saw previously. And Afghanistan, fingers crossed, will begin to wind down later this year as well. So that and will maybe help. won't escalate. Well, hopefully not. I mean, obviously, we've, we've seen some interesting developments uh, uh, with the um, killing of bin Laden uh, a couple of weeks ago, which hopefully, uh, fingers crossed, will, will start to begin to force a political settlement within Afghanistan. But I don't think there's any question defense spending will, will have to come down. Again, as both of these wars wind down, or at least as they, as they don't escalate any further, that will put some downward influence on defense spending. And I think generally, I'm a big believer that whatever the political dynamics, and clearly we have a dynamic here where the Republican side would like to see almost entirely cuts in current spending, where the Democrats and others would like to see a combination of cuts and tax increases. I do believe that all sides of the budget are going to have to make some contributions. We talked about health care. There will have to be some reductions there. And you mentioned uh, Secretary Gates. I think Secretary Gates, even though he's on the way out right now, has been fairly prudent uh, in acknowledging that there are going to have to be some cuts on the defense side as well. So great reductions, huge reductions, no, but I think that defense will have to make a contribution. Cecilia asks, why do American oil companies continue to demand subsidies after record-breaking profits? Uh, she must have been watching the uh, testimony yesterday on the Hill. Yeah, it, 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 it's, it's a good question. There, there are two ways, really, uh, to look at this. On the one hand, the U.S. tax code is, is really uh, a mess. Uh, ideally, and depending on your point of view, it would be better to have taxes that are relatively low, 
but relatively consistent across industries, and then, of course, uh, among individuals, relatively consistent there as well. You're always going to have graduated taxes where people who earn more pay a bit more. But having all of these loopholes and exceptions in the tax code really makes it uh, a mess and very inefficient. Uh, the oil companies have tax breaks, no question about that. From our perspective, as this budget process winds its way through, what we would like to see happen is that for a lot of those tax breaks, not just necessarily for oil companies, but for businesses in general, for a lot of the loopholes really to be taken out of the tax code. On the other hand, to sort of compensate for that, it would be good to see the overall level of the tax rate come down a bit. So in other words, you, would, you still need to raise money. We still need to, to manage the government and pay for the things that Americans want the government to pay for. But from our perspective, you know, my answer would be, yes, I don't like to see all of those loopholes in there. It makes for, for a very unfair tax code. Those who have more political influence get away with a lot more than those who do not. So I would like to see some of those tax loopholes come out. But at the same time, as they come out, it's important for business to keep taxes at a, at a pretty moderate or low level because given the nature of the global economy right now, people will relocate overseas. So uh, I'd like to see uh, an expression that, that you hear often but I think is absolutely right, a, a fairer, more balanced tax code with lower rates but fewer loopholes. And we have another tax question from, from John. It is argued that increasing marginal tax rates to pre-Bush levels would stifle hiring and investment by small businesses. Do you agree with this? Well, it's, it's an interesting question. Uh, moving towards the end of last year when the Bush tax cuts were going to expire, the general view was that we did not want, we did not want to see those tax levels go back to where they were for everyone. And I think that was the right call, and of course they didn't. Uh, there, was, there was quite a, a, I would say, sensible and well-thought-out agreement that was put into place by both the President and by the Republicans in the House that prevented those tax increases from coming through, or at least the taxes from reverting to the level where they were. Given that the economy is still in, in slightly fragile position, that was the right decision. Now, the question, of course, the political question is whether or not you would like to see tax increases, at least at the individual level, go back up for those who are making incomes of over about 250,000. People will have their own views on that, but I'm certainly of the view that while the economy is underperforming right now, and there's no question that it's underperforming, we don't need to see taxes go up right now. And had taxes gone up to those pre-Bush levels for small businesses, that would have been a negative for job growth. I, I feel there's no question about that. Susan asks, should more regulation be imposed on the banks? Well, after the, uh, after the recession 2008-2009, the recession, by the way, although it doesn't feel like it has been over for almost two years, there was a great deal of discussion and debate about significantly more regulation being imposed on banks. Two years later, a lot of that regulation never really materialized. Now, some of it has. Banks are under more restrictions than they were previously whether they're banks that are operating in the mortgage markets or others. One example, for the big investment banks, the big investment banks can't really gamble their own money the way they used to, or at least not to the extent that they could previously. So uh, make no mistake about it, there are more regulations on the banks than there were before. Increasingly, banks that lend 
to consumers and to homeowners are having to hold their loans. As you may have known in the past, banks would make loans and then quickly pass them on to someone else. So there have been a number of, of uh, regulations put into effect to try to prevent some of the problems we saw in, in, in the run-up to 2008 and However, by and large, uh, the, the volume of regulation of what people were anticipating hasn't materialized. And, and I think that probably that's uh, – I, I don't know that that's a good thing, but you do want to make – you do want to be careful not to overreact. Now, certainly the recession was, was horrible. This was the worst recession we've had since the 1930s. And to a large extent, government picked up the tax. So government has a right to say that if we're going to have to – clean up this mess, then we have to take some steps to make sure it doesn't happen again. At the same time, you don't want the overreaction to get to the point where it prevents companies from doing business at all. So I think right now, bottom line, I like some of the measures that I've seen go into effect. I think they probably will cause banks to be more risk-averse than they were. And uh, in my view, I think bankers should be risk-averse. You know, when we're looking specifically at the United States, um, and you said that our economy is underperforming. It, it seems to me that there's a lot of contradictory signs. Um, the stock market is doing extremely well, and yet unemployment uh, went back up a little bit last last week to 9%. Why? Uh, I, I read in some uh, article that the fact that unemployment went up is, is a good sign because it means that more people are, are, are looking for jobs uh, that had perhaps given up. But how do you see unemployment shaking out for the rest of this year and maybe for the next year or so? Sure. Uh, part of the reason that the sometimes the unemployment rate goes up when lots of jobs were created is, is a function of, of the unusual way that the government looks at these figures, which I can discuss in a minute. But overall, we, we still have far, far too many Americans who are out of work. During the recession, we lost eight about 8.5 million jobs during that period of, of negative and slow growth. We've recovered about 2 million of those jobs, a little more than 2 million. So we're beginning to get back. But at that very basic level, we were down 8.5. We've come back with about 2 million jobs. You can still see at a minimum how much further we have to go. The good news is we have had three months in a row of pretty good job growth, about more than a quarter million private sector jobs in each of the last three months. So that's a pretty good sign. We'd like to see it higher than that. In past recessions or after past recessions, we've sometimes seen 350,000 jobs a month. So we're not coming back at quite the level that we should, but it has improved. And from our perspective, we think it will continue improving this year and into next year but it's going to be a relatively slow slog. This idea of, of the V-shaped recovery where you fall sharply and recover sharply, we don't see happening in the job market. I'd say steady improvement. I think we probably will see more than 200,000 jobs a month, most months for the rest of this year. But again, we still have another six or seven million jobs to recover, so it's going to take a while. And why? Housing market is still very weak. We still have some sectors of the economy that are not performing well. So getting better, but it's not going to do a, a complete um, turnaround overnight by no means. What do you think the unemployment rate in the United States will be on election eve? Now, that, that, that's a great question. I've, uh, people have asked who they think will, will win the – who I think will win the presidency next year. 
and uh, whether whether President Obama will will be reelected. I think there are, there are a lot of factors there, but there are two that I would identify. And one is the state of the jobs market, and the other one, of course, is, is who the candidate is that the Republican Party puts forward. Uh, that latter point is going to be very important. I suspect that the unemployment rate on Election Day is probably going to be a little bit below 8%. Right now, the unemployment rate, as you mentioned, Jim, went back up to 9%, but that was a little bit of an anomaly, as you mentioned. The unemployment rate sometimes goes up when the number of jobs also increases, but that's, that's almost more of a statistical effect. When jobs are being created consistently month after month after month, the unemployment rate does go down. So the unemployment rate, I, I think, will move steadily down over the rest of this year, uh, a tenth of a point here and there every few months. And I would say that looking ahead about 18 months, which is the time frame you're, you're suggesting for the election, I'd say maybe 7.8, 7.9%. Um, and that might, that might be just enough, depending on who the Republican candidate is, for uh, President Obama to get reelected again. It's still very high. I'd love to see unemployment back down in, into the fours, but it's going to be quite a few years, if ever, before we get back to that level. But it, it seems to me, too, that the United States is facing a, an issue of, of, of structural unemployment, almost like what you're seeing in some of the European countries, that um, we don't have the, the right skills for the jobs that are available. Uh, one thing is, I guess, now 70 percent of, of, of black dropouts from high schools are not working. Uh, Thirty-five percent of high school dropouts are unemployed. Um, and we, The United States is, seems to be really facing a critical situation with uh, uh, certain uh, areas of our, our population. Yeah, that's that's certainly true. With regard to your your comment about uh, Europe and the fact that structural employment was most often identified with Europe, uh, a lot of people aren't aware of the fact that we actually have a much higher unemployment rate in the United States today than we do in Germany. Germany is booming right now, and I'm sure five, ten years ago it would have surprised most people to hear that uh, the U.S. unemployment rate was higher than it is in Germany, but it certainly is. I think the issue here is we, we've had for a long time, uh, unfortunately, very high levels of unemployment for high school dropouts and also for black teenagers and a few others. And, and that's, there's a number of reasons for that. One is increasingly over the last 10 or 15 years, we've moved into what is sometimes called a, a knowledge economy. And while education has always been critically important, uh, we've gotten to the level right now, and, and I, I think most kids know this right now, is that your ability to really function well in the economy without a good education is just not very high at the moment. So really anyone with, without even a basic education or without some skills and some education moving into the university level is going to struggle because of the needs of this knowledge-based economy. Where I see even more concerns than the ones that you've mentioned is this idea of, of long-term unemployment. We have a lot more Americans who have been out of work for a longer period of time, say more than a half a year or more than a year than we did previously. So these are people that had jobs. We're, we're not talking about, say, a high school dropout who hasn't had a job. We're talking about people who had good jobs but have now been out of work for maybe a half a year or a year. And the issue there is going to be whether or not they lose their skills over those period of time, being out of work for a while, and then have trouble getting back into the workforce. And that's something that we are concerned about. We need the economy to pick up 
a little bit faster to get those folks back into the workforce before, and hopefully this is not the case, before they lose their skills and then become unemployable. And that would be the worst kind of structural unemployment. Let's go to our second challenge question. And uh, the, whoever answers this question correctly could receive a one-year subscription to The Economist or as well will be happy to uh, extend your, your subscription if you're already a subscriber. The question is, how many countries make up the Eurozone compared to 27 in the European Union? 9, 13, 17, or 22? Be the first person to answer that correctly and will extend or give you a subscription to The Economist. Can globalization be blamed for the loss of jobs, or is it now more of an issue of increased productivity and a different way of doing business? No, I don't think you can blame globalization overall for a decrease in jobs. At one level, yes, it's certainly the case that there has been a steady stream of outsourcing in the United States for the last 20 years. So, yes, there are some jobs that move out of the United States that move overseas, but it really is important to understand that, that this is not a zero-sum game. Right now, the United States is going through a terrific export boom. We are exporting enormous amounts of goods and services right now, more than we ever have before. In fact, most quarters over the last few years, exports have, have been a strong positive for the U.S. economy. And although we still have big trade deficits with some of the emerging markets, including China, we are beginning to sell a lot more to emerging markets. As you know, President Obama had a plan announced a year or two ago to try to double exports over the next four or five years. And that's a sensible thing to do. We are finding that a lot of our goods and services are very popular overseas. And one of the reasons that we are doing better with the economy, though by no means terrifically well, is that manufacturing is coming back in the U.S., and we are exporting a lot of our manufacturing goods. A lot of countries overseas still want U.S. goods, not just U.S. wheat and agriculture, which has always been very much in demand, uh, but other countries are buying U.S. goods, and for that reason, that aspect of globalization I think is important and, and over time provides a, a big benefit that more than offsets what we lose through outsourcing and other job reduction programs that sometimes companies embark on here. But before we move to some questions on specific countries, uh, John asks, you note more risk in commodities has investors shifting back to the dollar, pushing its value higher. How will this balance out, again, a question with quantitative easing, how will this balance out with quantitative easing? And please respond specifically in the context of the United States looking to spur growth in manufacturing and exports in the absence of the opportunity for economic growth in housing and construction? So there's a, a, a lot going on there, too, uh, in that question. So on the one hand, by ending quantitative easing, which we expect to happen at the end of June, that should be beneficial to the dollar. And if you think about that, it makes sense. If the Federal Reserve right now is, is engaging in, in a very loose policy, in other words, printing a lot of dollars, keeping a lot of money out, of, out there in the economy, that's generally not favorable for the value of the dollar, and therefore people would not be inclined to hold it. You don't want to hold an asset where someone is printing large quantities of it. So as quantitative easing ends, and as the Fed makes clear, and I think they have started to make clear that they will not be embarking on another stimulus program of that sort, 
that would be favorable to the dollar. If we assume that investors are becoming a bit more risk-averse, as I suggested earlier, and also decide to move back into a safe haven currency and out of commodities, that would also be favorable to the dollar, which would suggest that the dollar would rise. And in fact, that is what the forecast is for the Economist Intelligence Unit. If you look at our numbers, EIU is saying the dollar will rise as we go further into the year. We've seen it rise in the last week. We think it will continue to slowly rise later this year for the reasons that we mentioned. Now, in terms of U.S. competitiveness and exporting, I mentioned U.S. exports were doing very well. They're doing well for a number of reasons, but yes, partly because the dollar has been somewhat weak. It takes a while for the weakness or strength of the dollar to flow through into exports, but I would say that we're not expecting the dollar to soar in value. If the dollar really got super strong, say, against the euro or some other currencies, you're right that that could ultimately hurt exports. We think the dollar will get moderately stronger, which is probably a good thing. It will help to keep inflation down. But at the same time, we're not expecting it to get so strong that it's going to completely quash this nice export boom that we've seen over the last uh, the last couple of years. I want to congratulate Chris Matthews. He's the winner of the challenge question two. Seventeen countries make up the Eurozone compared to 27 in the European Union. Chris, you receive a year-long subscription to The Economist. We have about ten minutes left, and Leo, I'd like you to tell our listeners a bit more about the services offered by the EIU. Uh, I read, uh, I, I get every week uh, Robin's email, which has very helpful updates, and always enjoy reading uh, Viewswire, which in fact just recently had a, a really good piece on the world economy, high unemployment, here to stay. Yeah. Thanks, Jim. The, um, the Economist Intelligence Unit is, is part of the larger Economist family. As, as you've mentioned, of course, uh, the Economist magazine is a terrific publication. We, we have more readers for The Economist magazine in the U.S. than any other country. The EIU is, is a sister publication, a sister organization. Uh, the big difference between them is the Economist Intelligence Unit is more directed uh, towards businesses, to companies, uh, to governments. Those, those tend to be the organizations that rely on the EIU because of the forecasting and the analysis that we do. So the magazine is, is, is a phenomenal product. Lots and lots of consumers read it. It's a terrific read. I've been reading it long before I, I came to work for the Economist Group. The EIU really directs itself towards trying to help companies figure out how to do business overseas. So we're, we're a bit more focused on the data and on trying to help companies come up with individual strategies. But we cover a lot of the same issues as The Economist magazine. We some cover them in different ways, but as you've just suggested, we're looking at important issues involving uh, economic growth, involving budget deficits, and that's because these issues matter for people in their daily lives, and they matter for companies as well. So uh, different audiences, but uh, the same approach, hopefully the same uh, good analysis and, and the same transparency and independence that the entire company tries to bring to what we do. And some of your services are without charge and then others are. Do you have a, an analyst uh, or a manager of your account that then helps you uh, reach out to other people in your unit, or, or how does that work? Sure. Like, like most organizations and even like some newspapers and others, uh, a certain amount of our analysis is provided uh, free of charge. You can see a lot of it by going on EIU.com for EconomistIntelligenceUnit.com. And so we provide uh, a fair amount of that analysis free of charge. 
it allows everyone, really businesses, uh, consumers, everyone, to get some flavor for what we're saying. But, of course, uh, a lot of what we provide comes to our clients on a, on a subscription basis or, or special projects that we do for them as well. So, like, like most companies, we have a variety of ways of getting our information out. And uh, we, we try to provide uh, a certain amount of it, as I said, free of charge so that people can see what we're thinking and benefit from that as well. And then come to us if they need more detailed analysis to really help their companies or for us to help advise governments on how to plan their strategies as well. And so if one of our listeners was with a company that wanted to do business, say, in Nigeria or Brazil, they could find the information they need and who to contact on your website? Absolutely. If, if you, The best place to go is EIU.com, which is easy to remember, and there's plenty of information there on how to identify the analysts within the EIU and, of course, also uh, the sales and marketing team. The, the main advantage that we have over, over some others and, and is that we have – coverage of every country in the world in some depth. So do we cover the United States? Of course we do. Everyone does. But we cover Nigeria, Tunisia, uh, Argentina, Botswana. We cover every country. And basically, we are, in a sense, uh, a globalized company. We've been doing globalization long before uh, the rest of the world was doing globalization, as it were. So we can generally provide information on any region of the world, and any country in some depth. That's why we have 150 people in our various headquarters offices. Those are all analysts, macroeconomists, political scientists working on these issues. Great. I appreciate that. Uh, we have just a few minutes left, and as you can imagine, we have a number of questions on, on about China. Uh, Chris, in particular, says, I read the assessment on China property is not having a strong bubble. What is your key concern for China? And then, Leo, I'm reminded that just about a year ago, everyone was talking about whether or not there was going to be a currency war, and it seems like currency was barely on the table uh, when we had the uh, uh, summit or economic summit in, in Washington just a few days ago uh, between the United States and, and China. Um, and China is also, I think, having you know, experiencing higher than expected inflation. So if you could perhaps touch on those few issues in the remaining minutes. Sure, absolutely. China, critically important to the global economy, mainly because although China has been growing at a rapid rate for a long period of time, China is now a very large economy, well over $5 trillion a year. And when you combine a large economy with a fast-growing economy, you have a major, major engine of global growth. So China, as everyone knows, matters, and it matters hugely to the health and, and support of the overall economy. We're still concerned about the property market in China. China does a lot of things right, no question about that. But China also has a habit of when they want to improve the growth in their economy or when they want to try to slow it down, of using the property market as, as kind of a, 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 a toggle. They turn the property market up, they invest in it to try to get the economy going, and then they try to turn it down again when the economy is in danger of overheating the way it is now. From my perspective, that's a pretty dangerous thing to do. You saw what happened in the United States when we let the property market get out of hand and there was too much investment in it. So while we are by no means predicting a crash in China, when we look at our alternate scenarios, we have a baseline, what we think will happen, but then we also look at other risks. The possibility of there being a hard landing in China, while not by any means at the top of our list, is on the list because China does have, in our view, 
the makings of a property bubble. China's put an awful lot of construction in place over the last couple of years. And think about what's happening in China now. They're trying to slow the economy. So what do you think will happen if they've been building more office buildings, building more homes? All this property is coming on the market. Someone needs to buy it. But at the same time, China is raising interest rates and doing things to slow the economy. You can see there's a disconnect there. So that does give us some, some cause for concern. And you talk about inflation. China does begin to have, now is beginning to have, the makings of an inflation problem. Inflation in China is now over 5%. And the government, forget my view on this, the government has identified inflation as its biggest single problem because it does not want to see consumers lose their ability to, to have their purchasing power reduced. So that's why the government's raising interest rates. It's doing everything it can to try to bring it down. And we think they'll probably have some success. The Chinese have been fairly adept at managing the economy the last few years. And if you had to ask me, will they get that proverbial soft landing, I think they probably will. But I would also say that if you ask me what some of the biggest risks are in the global economy, I would say that China, China's property market and China overheating is not an inconsiderable risk. And I'd like to remind our listeners that on Thursday, June 30th, our next Global IQ will be with uh, James Miles, who will be writing the Economist Special Report, China. And so we'll be able to go into considerable detail on China's politics and economics. Leo, I want to thank you for being with us today. It's been very helpful and insightful, and uh, I think you're giving us a lot to think about and hopefully giving us a competitive edge for the rest of 2011 and beyond as we ride the economic wave. Jim, it was a pleasure to be here. Thank you very much for inviting me. And please visit dfwworld.org forward slash Global IQ to sign up for the latest updates on Global IQ with The Economist. And I want to invite all of you to uh, attend the Buttonwood Gathering. This is the Economist uh, two-day conference that brings together global thought leaders, practitioners, and provocateurs in international finance. The conference is going to take place in New York City on October 26th and 27th. And for details about that, go to buttonwood.economist.com. And if you're not yet a subscriber to The Economist or if you're not registered on EIU, please go to both websites to learn more about the subscription with The Economist as well as the services with the EIU. And uh, it is a great uh, uh, graduation gift. Uh, in fact, I just bought um, a, a, a subscription for one of my good friends who's graduating from college. To find a World Affairs Council near you, please visit worldaffairscouncils.org. Global IQ is a presentation of the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth and the World Affairs Councils of America in association with The Economist. Today's broadcast was generously supported by Texas Capital Bank and Jones Day. Remember, together, The Economist and the World Affairs Council put you on top of the world. Thanks so much for listening.